This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Annabelle Abbs, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me. Now, what a lovely book. Um, it's been very popular with our readers. The book is called The Language of Food. And for the people that know me, I'm a cookbook reader <laughs> and uh, cook. Um, so it was certainly a book that was right down my alley. I'd always been a big fan of Elizabeth David, who you might know of. And yeah. I, I love reading about food in any book, really, even if it's a crime procedural <laughs> what about you? I absolutely love reading cookbooks. Yeah. I love reading about food. I love reading, yeah, like you, anything, anything that actually starts to make me feel hungry is, is yeah. a good read for me. Yeah, yeah. And also I feel that food in fiction very often just makes the book kind of believable because otherwise the characters don't eat anything. Yeah, I know what you mean. One of the reasons I really wanted to write this was because I didn't find very many fiction books that were about food or about chefs or about cooking. Uh, quite a lot of non-fiction and quite a lot of, uh, you know, foodie memoirs. But in terms of novels, there were really very few. Yeah. And yeah, before no, I started I writing this, I, I, you know, I ordered all of the books that, you know, the famous ones that are about food, you know, from Babette's Feast right through yeah. to contemporary things. And there really weren't very many. I was amazed. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let me introduce you. Annabelle is an author of fiction and nonfiction who grew up in Wales and Sussex and now lives in London. Her first novel, The Joyce Girls, was a Guardian Reader's pick, and her second novel, Frida, the original Lady Chatterley, was the Times 2018 Book of the Year. So today the book is called The Language of Food, which is the book we're talking about, um, and it's about Eliza Acton, the British poet who became an unlikely creator and pioneer of cookery books. Now, I lived in London for a time and my favourite, favourite bookshop was Books for Cooks. It's still there. <laughs> <laughs> it's still there, yes. It's an absolute it's sort of an institution now for anyone who's interested in food and cookery writing. Because it was down the road from where I lived. And every Saturday, they used to have a little cafe at the back. I don't know if that's still Yeah, there. they still it have is. their little cafe. Yeah, and I'd go there every single Saturday. I'd go to Port- Portobello Markets and then Books for Cooks. Yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful bookshop. Mm, isn't it? So tell me about you um, and tell me about your journey to writing. So let's go way back. How did you come to writing books? Um, well, actually, it's it's not that way back because I only started writing probably about uh, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I've definitely in my in my prime, or maybe even past my prime. Well, but I want to <laughs> know. spring chicken. What were you doing before you were writing books? So before, well, go, going right back, I've got a, I've got a, degree in English. And then I went and worked in, I just worked in, in 
communication. So I, I was writing, I was writing lots of, I was writing speeches for people. I was writing press releases. I was writing articles. So I was writing, but mm-hmm. it wasn't really terribly creative. I was just writing what, you know, what people, what people asked me to write. And then I left my job and I have four children. So then I spent wow. a bit of time just with my kids at home and cooking. I mean, gosh, cooking, 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 you know, three meals every day, day in, day out. So that was my, I mean, I'd always really loved cooking, um, but suddenly I was sort of cooking more like a machine. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I want to ask you about that because I don't, um, I live alone. I have many friends who come over for dinner, but I tend only, because people always say to me, oh, you're such a great cook. And, you know, I'm a good cook, but I'm not cooking every single day and I'm not cooking for a family every single night like my mother did and like you're doing. That, I think, is a different take on cooking. Yes, it is. It, it sort of slightly takes the, the joy out of cooking, particularly mm. when you've got four children and they don't like this and one doesn't like that and they won't eat this and they want to cook mm. like that. So but it, so, so it slightly takes some of the fun out of it. But what it what it does is it gives you a, a sort of a, a cooking discipline, if you like. You know that every day you've got to produce um, you know, you've got to produce these three meals and you've got to, you know, you've got a budget for it. And you've got to make sure that everyone is going to get the right nutrients. So you start thinking about food production in a in a slightly in a slightly less a less fun way, mm. but in a more in a more creative way. I think sometimes mm. because you can't just pick and choose. You know, before we had children like you, I would just like look through cookery books, invite some friends over on a Saturday mm. night, and it and yeah. the whole thing would be a joy. Absolutely. <laughs> when you're yeah. doing it all the time, it's less of a joy, but you do find you're having to think a little bit more imaginatively to, you I, know, to keep making things interesting and yeah yeah I grew up in a family of six so there were six of us and my parents were immigrants to this country my mother is a, was a great cook she died very recently and she would put down every single night a wonderful meal for her six children and for her and dad and I didn't realize the value of that until I grew up. Well, I mean, I was helping her. She she kind of corralled me to start into helping her when I was quite young, nine and ten. But really looking back at that now, and you know, they weren't just ordinary meals. She was cooking tabbouleh. She was cooking stuff fine leaves. And she worked during the day. And I just think about that and wonder how you could pull that off. But I think that was the female cultural tradition, wasn't it? Yes. That is what women did they often worked they often had very large families mm. the husband never cooked mm. and they would come they would be cooking day in day out and we really we've sort of we've lost that haven't we mm. Um, because you know we have we have ready meals <laughs> we have ready meals and processed food and we have mm. smaller families but as a discipline in the, I think it was I think there's something to be said for it it feels like a grind at the time but as you point out it, that's an incredible gift that, mm. that your mother gave you mm. every single day and now mm. you love food and cooking and that's that's thanks to her isn't it if she mm. just fed you you know soup out of a tin you wouldn't <laughs> be who you is, are that's exactly I'm going to tell you a, a really quick, quick story I don't I'm not sure I've talked about it on this podcast before but you know here we were Lebanese immigrants in inner city glebe um you know we stood out we were very different to everybody around us and my mother was amazing all she wanted was for us to fit in and I was invited by a school friend so it would have been I would have been under 10 um I was invited by a school friend for a sleepover 
And the school friend's mum rang my mum and asked her what I would like to eat. You know, what is it that you, you would like for dinner? And for some reason, my mother said chicken soup, which I adored my mother's chicken soup. Anyway, I got to the sleepover and it was chicken soup out of a packet <laughs> that this woman served up. And I started crying. And I couldn't eat I'm it. with you. <laughs> I would have done the same. It was so not like chicken soup, right? And so she thought I was homesick. And so they rang my mother. And then I get on the phone and I say to mum, you know, it's not chicken soup. And she just went me. She gave me the biggest lecture about being polite and being and eating what I'm given. But it was my first experience because we never ate at restaurants or anything like that. You didn't have the money. But it was my no. first experience of eating outside the home. And I just, I didn't know what soup out of the packet was. That's such a wonderful a, story. A, a, similar, a similar thing happened to my daughter, actually, which was really embarrassing. She went to a, a birthday party and for that, for a sort of a treat, the mother was taking them all to McDonald's. Oh, and my 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 children had never, ever had a McDonald's. They'd never really had any processed food. And when my daughter, who must have been about seven or eight, got to McDonald's, she just refused. She yeah, refused wow. to eat anything. And the mum rang me up to say, she doesn't want a McDonald's. I don't know what to do. And I was absolutely mortified. <laughs> so when my daughter, I, I said, just, just, she'll just go hungry. She'll just go hungry, you know. <laughs> When my daughter got home, you know, she got the biggest lecture from me, exactly the same, you know, about manners. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay, so there you were, um, working away in a comms career, raising four children and cooking three meals a day. And I'm glad you've added that to it because people don't often talk about the extra work they do when they're raising children. And then you came to writing late. Tell me how that came about. Yeah, so when my youngest child got to about seven and you know, I had a little bit more of extra time. I started to feel quite bored because, you know, by this time I spent a lot of time cooking, <laughs> cooking. And I thought I need to do something else. And, uh, and I, and I, so I started to write and I wrote a novel and, um, what, then what do the you novel... mean you just wrote a novel? <laughs> you just said that, uh, wrote a novel. Tell me more about that. I, I mean, mean I you... make it sound very, very simple. I did, it wasn't, it was quite a painful procedure, yeah. but I just, I would sit at, I would take them to school, come home and I'd sit at my desk and I would, I would try and write a novel. Did you uh, and know I had this how idea. to write a novel? No, I'd never written a novel. I'd never been on a creative writing course. I was a complete dunce, but I was too busy to do a course. I, thought, I haven't got time to do a course. I'm just going to have to sit at my desk in these you know, few hours and see what I can do. I work, I work really hard at it. When it was finished, I thought, oh, what do I, what do, I do now? I didn't, have a, I didn't know how the publishing industry worked. I didn't have an agent. But there are quite a lot of competitions in the UK. I think yeah. it's the same in Australia. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I discovered that there was this whole world of writing competitions. So I thought, oh, well, I'll enter it. And I entered it for uh, several, actually, and it got uh, long-listed for the first one I entered. So I thought, oh, this is a bit odd. Mm-hmm. And then I did another, and it got short-listed. And I thought, oh, <laughs> must mm-hmm. be onto something. And then I entered another one and it won, but I was lucky because the competition that it won, it wasn't just a, oh, here you go, well done as a book token or whatever. It was a, you get published. Yeah, so wow. the book got published bizarrely and uh, it got some good reviews. And so then I started on another one. So I had absolute beginner's luck and, you know, everything just sort of worked. Yeah, I'm going to put you up right there because I don't think it's beginner's luck. I think you've got a beautiful writing style. And I think uh, I'm so glad you touched on competitions because I often forgot to forget to talk about them um, on the podcast, but they are so crucial, I think, in 
trying to really corral an audience because people have to like the story and they have to like your writing style, don't they? And competitions are good for that. And competitions are really good just for giving you a little bit of confidence. So just yeah. when you're thinking, oh, this isn't for me, I'm really no good at this. Just even just being long listed yeah. or just getting a little mention, mm-hmm. you think, oh, maybe, maybe I'll mm-hmm. carry on. Maybe I can do mm-hmm. this. And you'll go back and you'll edit it again and again because it's just giving you that. Mm-hmm. It's very easy with writing because mm-hmm. you're, you're on your own. There's no one else saying, well done, that's good, you know, <laughs> keep going. Mm-hmm. Completely down to you. And it's very easy, I think, to get to get sort of knocked down and just put it in a drawer and just think, oh, okay, mm. you know, I'll go back to my shopping and cooking. Mm. <laughs> no, you're yeah, right. I think that's a really important whatever step. Whatever it is, my gardening. It's, it's not just luck because you're right. It's entering it four or five times and refining it in that process yeah. as well. And that's practice, right? Yeah, you're, you're right. There's this great phrase, which I'm sure you know, which is writing is rewriting. Mm. And I think that was my biggest lesson is you just keep going back to it over and over again. Mm. Um, so it, it's just stamina, I think. Mm. And, and having the skill, of course, and having the story. Okay, so you've got it there and you've now just been published. Did you, How then did you find, did an agent find you or you went out and looked for an agent? How did that process work for you? Yes, then I found an agent. Uh, in fact, it was a funny story. I, I mentioned to a friend that I had this novel that was just in passing. And then a few weeks later, she texted me from a beach in Italy. And she said, I'm just on holiday in Italy on a beach. And I've got a, an agent here next to me. And I've told her about you. Um, so she just happened to be on holiday with a, with a, with a literary agent, bizarrely. And the literary agent said, yes, yeah, send it to me. So I sent it over to her. And um she she liked it and so that was very that was very 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 easy so I mean I just had a lot of very 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 lucky breaks was that your second second book no that was with the first one so published by that company that you know had Mm -hmm. had, had done the prize but then my agent got me a publisher in Australia I went to auction in Australia actually that was the first country that published it the choice girl and then she sold it all over the world so it was one of those just strange strange very lucky, serendipitous things. And life is sometimes like that, isn't it? It isn't usually like that, but every now and then things just fall into place and someone meets someone and, you know, the timing is right. So I did have quite a lot of luck. Um, And so then I carried on and wrote another novel. And then this one, The Language of Food, is my third. And this one came about because about 20 years ago, my mother-in-law sort of bequeathed me and my husband a, a huge collection of very old cookery books. She used to be a, mm. a food, a, a sort of home economics sort of journalist on good housekeeping in the 50s. Mm. And she started collecting cookery books when it wasn't fashionable at all. And when you could pick them up really cheaply, no one wanted them. So she had this big collection and she gave them to us. And we, I just locked them up. I just put them in a cupboard and locked them up because I thought I didn't want the children scribbling on them and I wasn't going to cook from them because they were quite complicated to cook from. And then when I was looking around for a new subject, I thought, God, no one, I love cooking. I love reading cookery books. I love reading mm. about food, but no one really does it. I just, I find myself going to bed with like a pile of cookery books. And I thought, I love fiction. There must be a way of combining it. So I started going through all of these books, about 150 of them, and then researching the author of each one. So a lot of them were, were very, didn't have very exciting lives, as you can imagine they were, you know, a sort of a cook in a stately home and that's all they did. 
or they were perhaps occasionally there were sort of aristocratic women that would just take down the recipes from from their cooks um, but they weren't actually cooking themselves so then I found Eliza Acton and to my great surprise she had this fascinating backstory in that she had been a poet she wanted to be a poet she didn't really want to be a cookie writer but then she had ended up writing this best-selling cookery book and in the process of that she had actually invented the recipe as we know it because before her recipes were just this sort of list of instructions and it didn't have a list of ingredients. It didn't have any information on how long to cook things for or at what temperature. So before Eliza acted, a typical recipe would be about, you know, five lines, you know, mix eggs, mix flour, add milk, uh, throw in sugar, bake. Literally it was that because they were written for people who knew how to cook. But Eliza Acton realized that there was this whole new middle class of you know, women who uh, hadn't cooked but now needed to cook or needed to manage a cook, needed to be able to set a menu because their husbands wanted to start bringing their guests home, their clients, their business partners to try and you know, do deals over, over, over business because the whole of, of industrial revolution had changed really the, the makeup of society. So Eliza Acton spotted this and decided she would write for this new generation of young women who needed to know how to cook or how to manage a cook. And that's why her recipes are so thorough and detailed and tell you exactly what to do and, you know, what temperature your fire should be and how long you soak something for or how many eggs or how long you whisk them for. So she was the first person to do that. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Do you still have that book? Yes, yes, I do. I do. I I have many, many editions of her books. She wrote two books, but the first one was the big bestseller. It was called Modern Cookery for Private Families. I've got about five different versions because it was reprinted you know, over and over again. It was such a huge success. Right. Now, how do you fictionalise something like that? Because was there a lot on her? I mean, how do you research someone like her? Tell me how that process happened. Well, I was really lucky because she left um, a published collection of poetry. So a very, very frank poetry about her, you know, her broken, a lot of it about her broken heart. So there's obviously she had had this big sort of drama and passion in her life. So she left her poetry collection. She left the cookbook in which she quite, you know, her voice is very, very clear 
in her cookery book. She, she's always giving her views and her opinions and her suggestions. And then she left her second cookery book, which is about bread baking. It was the first book ever to look at just, just bread. And that also has a long introduction with her views on bread and the importance of nutrition and the importance of healthy eating and the importance of, you know, unadulterated flour. So I was starting to get a sense of her, but she left no letters, no journals, no manuscripts of the cookery books, uh, no will. All of that had just been absolutely, uh, well, probably um, destroyed. But one biographer had a go at producing a biography of her. And so I did have this very slim biography, but you know, it was mostly speculation, mm. which actually is brilliant for a, a writer of fiction. You know, we love those holes. We love those holes because we can go in and imagine. You know, mm. if you've got too much material, it can be quite hard to to sort of get the distance and to be really imaginative because you, mm. you you've got you're weighed down with facts. And I certainly was not weighed down with facts about Eliza Jackson, but I had enough. You know, I knew where she'd lived and what dates she'd been in which houses. I knew she had this assistant for 10 years called Anne Kirby. And I knew, you know, I knew how she died. So I had enough to put it all together. And then I knew from the poetry that she'd had this big passion in her life. We know that she traveled from her recipe books. She talks about her travels in Italy and France. So we also know that at some stage she'd managed to get abroad, which was also quite unusual, really. Oh, absolutely. And we, we knew that her father had gone bankrupt. So I had enough enough data to put something together that felt sort of authentic and and realistic. Mm. When you're writing about historical fiction about somebody who you know who lived, do you form a relationship with them? Like, do you get yeah. to the point whether you like them or whether you don't like them just through behaviours? Talk to me about that. Yeah, and I should say actually the most important aspect of my research was cooking. I, I feel as I cooked my way into her. So I cooked her recipes for, oh, for two wow. years. Yeah. For two years, my family were having to eat, you know, oh, it's Eliza Acton soup tonight. It's Eliza Acton stew tonight. And it was quite interesting because that, that is something I'd never done before. I'd never used cooking as a means of researching someone. So when you cook from someone's recipes, I think you start to get we don't really think about this, do we? We think we're just following a recipe. But if you're cooking from the same person for two years, you start to understand a bit about how their mind works, particularly mm. when they're leaving lots of little comments mm. in their recipes about, mm. you know, I think I think this works with less sugar. I think this works with, you know, more, uh, more, more cream. You start to get a sense of their personality. Mm. So I think the relationship I built with her was one through was built through food and built through her recipes that uh, she had invented or that she had fine tuned, and that's a really lovely way to get to know someone. You would probably think yourself that you probably know good part of your mother. You will remember her through her food. Oh, without a doubt, and also too. I mean, you know, I'm I know Nigella Lawson. I mean, I actually do know Nigella, but I like her writing as much as I like her recipes. Like she writes yes. beautifully, you know. Um, and Elizabeth David is another woman Elizabeth, who yeah, writes. Abs- the writing yeah. sort of is a is a portal into her mm-hmm. into how I imagine her character was. Mm. But I was able to have Nigella for dinner. You weren't able. Were to have you? Eliza. Yes, you weren't able to have Eliza for dinner. <laughs> That's fantastic. How did you manage that? 
We've become friends. Um, she loves Sydney. She loves Australia. And uh, one year, pre-COVID, she was here and she felt like a home-cooked meal. And a friend of mine is her publicist. And she called me and she said, hey, do you want to cook for Nigella? Yeah, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> and then we, we've remained in contact since. But I've always admired her writing because she was a writer, I think, and then yeah, and so you can see that there's an Australian, and I don't know if you know her, called Stephanie Alexander. She's got this fabulous look her up actually. She's a beautiful writer, well, and, she, and she wrote a, a, a fabulous cookbook uh, called The Cook's Companion that has sold in this country hundreds and thousands. But I think it is more the reading of her recipes as much as as it is the recipes, as we were talking about. Yes, yes. And and you're absolutely right about um, Nigella. She's a, a really beautiful writer. I think of her and Elizabeth David and Eliza Acton. I see them in the same, mm. the same sort of vein in terms of, you know, being writers first, mm. pr- probably writers first and, and cooks slightly after that, if that makes sense. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, not to say that they're not good cooks. Oh, but that's, the, yeah. The, the writing really brings their recipes to life. And also um, it makes it more enticing, I think, when you're reading something that's beautifully written. Yeah. I, for me, it's a motivator to get up and, you know, okay. I'm oh, it makes, it makes you want to, makes you want to cook the recipe. Yeah. And in fact, when I was reading through these 150 recipe books that I inherited, you know, Eliza's recipes were the first where I thought, oh, I really want to make that. Mm. Oh, that makes me hungry. Mm. Whereas the others were much more prosaically written, you know, they literally mm. just were this little instructions. So, so, and I think that's really important, particularly when you've got no no pictures, and you have to remember that all of those, yeah. all of the cookery books, really until about the 1950s, have no pictures, no no gloss, no photographs. No. So you're you're really having to imagine from the words. Mm. So from that, you decide to start writing this historical fiction. So you've done a whole yeah. lot of research. You feel as though you know her. Then the story comes. Tell me that process. Uh, well, obviously, I had the story of her life, so I didn't. I was quite lucky. This is. I, I generally work with real people. It's probably a bit cheating, actually, because it means I don't have to come. I don't have to come up with plots. <laughs> I did get a bit of plotting into Eliza because there were so many gaps, so right. so little that we knew about her actual life. So I got a few plot twists in, but they were of my own imagination. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I think that's the beauty of it in the retelling. That's the beauty of historical fiction. Yes, it is. And, and the other thing about when you're writing about someone who's cooking, you know, as as you and I know, cooking is quite straightforward. There's not, you know, there's not a lot of plot. So I needed to have some plot. To, to sort of wind the, the the food the food and the cookery around, um, so then I felt I yeah I felt I knew her quite well. I'd done a lot of research into that period. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the town where she um, had lived for that ten years where she was writing, and then I so then I started writing and uh, rewriting and writing and rewriting, you know, the process. Then it was turned down by all my publishers. So this is a little bit that I don't always talk about. People don't always ask me, but pre-COVID, I just thought, okay, I loved the story. I loved her. I thought this mm-hmm. is going to be easy. I went to my my publisher, you know, who's already publishing my books. And she said, oh, no, no, you know, just, you just, this is your book that you put in a drawer and forget about. <gasps> and I was sort of, I was Whoa. devastated. <laughs> But, but I, I, I said, but she's a she's a woman we need to know about. This is a really important story. And yeah. I think it's and I think a beautiful it's the best thing I've story. I bet you she wasn't a cook. Oh, no, she wasn't a cook. It's interesting. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. So, so my yeah. agent said, I, I think this one might be the one that goes in the drawer. She said, Every writer has a book they've just left in a drawer. Didn't you know? No one wants it. Didn't quite work. She said, I think this might be it. So I put it in the drawer and thought, okay, fine. And I didn't write any fiction after that. I turned to nonfiction because I was so devastated. And then. COVID struck and my agent got on the phone to me and she said, Annabelle, I think we need to get that book out of the drawer. And I said, well, why? She said, I've just sold a book on sourdough baking, you know, for multiple, multiple figures. Everyone is cooking. Everyone is reading cookbooks. They've got nothing else to do. It's COVID. I think this is going to sell. And it went straight to an auction, which I think shows you how fickle life is. Mm -hmm. You know, suddenly people were walking, Mm -hmm. How long did you hang on to it for? It was in a drawer for about a year. Wow. And yeah. did you had you started working on something else? Oh yeah, you were working on nonfiction. I yes, I'd gone to I'd gone to nonfiction. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, I've I've written two nonfiction books in in the time yeah. that that was in its drawer and now out of its drawer. Yeah. And I yeah. still and now everyone is saying, well, what are you going to do for fiction? And I said, I still I just still you know I'm still getting back to it because my confidence was so badly knocked. Mm-hmm. Do you know, I think that's extraordinary that you mentioned confidence too as a writer because the amount of rejection that writers get, I'm, I mean, you know, I speak to so many and they've had one rejected rejection after another and they keep going and they keep going. And I think, oh, gosh, if that was me, I mean, my confidence would have been shot way, way you know. They're tenacious but also they're it is the craft and the art and they have stories to tell. So they just have to keep going. You just have to keep going. Exactly. And although I was obviously very, very lucky with, yeah. the, with the first novel, uh, I was not so lucky uh, on the first time around with the third novel. So I think not only is it a matter of keeping going, but it's also a matter of sometimes thinking, okay, perhaps the time isn't right. Perhaps people aren't mm. all at home cooking, <laughs> whatever mm. it was. You know, perhaps the time isn't right. Perhaps I should put it in a drawer for a year. But then I'm going to get it out later because time times change, don't they? They do. And what, they what do. people want to read changes. So in mm. lockdown, people didn't want to read dark thrillers. Mm. They suddenly wanted to read historical fiction and they also wanted to read about food because they were all cooking. So the whole state of the, the reading landscape shifted. And I was unlucky with the first submission, but obviously very lucky. <laughs> luckily after that with the second one yeah we're out of time Annabelle thank you so much I have enjoyed our conversation very much the book is wonderful it's called The Language of Food thank you so much for having me I've loved our conversation if you'd like more information about Better Reading follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, Join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.